Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church podcast. With multiple campuses existing within Southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. Good morning. It's good to see everyone. Great to be together uh, on this uh, Memorial Day weekend. And certainly, um, I think it's worth uh, just pausing and to uh, just to express our gratitude uh, for what this weekend means, that the, the country that we get to uh, the freedoms we get to enjoy in our country um, came at a great cost to uh, a lot of men and women um, over the years, and certainly uh, we want to acknowledge that. I know there are family members and folks in our congregation um, whose families have a sacrifice, made the ultimate sacrifice for um, our country. I also think it's, it's, uh, it's important, you know, it's, or certainly appropriate, even though it's not the exact um, holiday, to acknowledge um, those who, uh, men and women who serve in our um, military today, and just say thank you. Um, for what you guys do and the families that sacrifice so much to allow us to enjoy what we do. So we can just say thank you for that as we kind of enjoy um, this weekend and celebrate that. Um, per- particularly with all the things that are swirling um, around in our country and the, the sort of culture that we are um, living in today. Uh, we're wrapping up a series um, on the Bible, talking about the Bible. If you've been around for the last, uh, it feels like 20 weeks now, but for the last uh, six weeks, we have been um, looking at the Scriptures and giving you some insight, or at least say, why do we use them and how do we use them? And part of um, what we did last week was we kind of gave you these three questions that I ask you to reflect on, uh, and if you wouldn't reflect on them, I, I prayed that you would be haunted by them. And it is, what does God seem to be saying to you? What are you willing to do about what he is saying? And uh, third is, what's at stake? And a lot of us, um, we live with the implications of responding to those questions. When, whenever you hear something, it comes with implications. Whenever you hear something, uh, it will require something from you. And so this is part of you know, how we process and part of the way which the narrative of the Bible is given to us is one that we overlooked most easily um, because of the way that we tend to live our lives, because of the culture that we have been raised in. It doesn't make it bad or wrong. It just means there's a gap between what was intended and what we experience today. And even the questions is that the Bible was written um, to sort of give us, uh, to be read in groups, uh, communally. There was, literacy was a thing, but the way the, but the printing press wasn't there, so they would circulate these letters, they would read them out loud in groups, and they would process from that, what is God seem to be saying? What is God saying? How do we organize, and how do we move, and what does God expect of us as followers of Jesus? And we'll draw some of that out a little bit more um, today. And We've been saying this, and I want to just keep putting this up in front of us so we'll know and understand what we're talking about, what we mean by the Bible, that the Bible is a collection of writings. There are 66 uh, different books that are contained in this library that we call or refer to as our Bibles. It's a collection of writings that reveal, uh, there are three things that I, I want to highlight. It reveals God's love. You have to ask yourself, how does he do that? How does he reveal his love to us? It reveals God's pursuit of us. There's the incarnation and all the other, the Christmas, all the things that come about this. 
And then ultimately, and I think this is one of the things that gets lost most in our sort of understanding of the way in which God works, is his promise of redemption. There are these three aspects, his love, his pursuit, and his promise of redemption. It is God-breathed and sovereignly preserved. The Bible reveals to us who God is and what God has to say to us, to us. Ultimately, it points us to Jesus Christ as our clearest revelation of God himself. And this is how the Bible is orchestrated. This is what Jesus taught about the way we use the scriptures. This is how we want to enter in to explore how God, what God has to say to us. Most of the, the references to you in the Bible aren't singular. They're not personal. They're collective. We talked about this. We talked about Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans God has for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper. Remember this? We did this a few weeks ago. Tried to eradicate everybody from using this as their, uh, on their coffee mugs, their favorite verses. We didn't do that, but you get the idea. But you should read it like this. I know the plans I have for y'all, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper y'all and not to harm y'all. It's, it's plural. And we often read it as though it's written to me and to my circumstance. And it's written to us for God's purposes. This is a much different way for us to think and to consider the Bible. So I want for us to learn to hear together. For us to understand the implications of what God has to say to us together. And they are, I think, stark. And a lot of what I intended to do today was kind of wrap this series up, talking about some of the technical ideas of the Bible and how we read it together and what we're going to do to read it together. But the events of the last couple of weeks have sort of changed the way I think we ought to approach this. In fact, every time I sat down to study over the last few weeks, I just can't get out of my mind what happened in Buffalo, what happened in Colorado, or California, and then what happened uh, last week in Texas. And just to reflect on it, to look at the names, to think about the funerals, to think about the families, to think about all the different things that the folks in Buffalo feel being attacked for their race, and for all of us having to deal with that, for these children who are in a classroom. We just, we, and the implication has on all of us. I've seen teachers who are in our area, right, responding with a sort of sense that we, we, we see on the news that, uh, and, and the storylines of kids sort of knowing how to practice for lockdowns in their classrooms in case someone comes in and starts shooting. And it's just, it's mind-blowing. Like we can't even get our heads around it. And you have to ask, you know, what is happening to us? What is happening to us? And so my emotions have run the range over the last couple weeks, the same probably as yours have. Depending on where you stand on various issues, you felt pressure to defend or pressure to whatever your thing might be. And it happens to all of us. It doesn't matter where you sit on any particular issue. But there's disbelief, there's sadness, there's sort of a sense of just deep heartbreak. There's frustration Anger, have you felt that? You're starting to see that come out now. And then blame, which is always the sort of the kiss of death on getting anything done. And the talk gravitates back and forth to this you know, idea that if we could just have the right strategy and just agree, agree on the right things, then this would never happen again. And perhaps that's true. Is there need for systemic changes and better policy? Of course there is. But there's an underlying problem 
that threatens us, I think, far more than any of the sort of surface, and I don't even mean to be trite about that, but the issues that we face. And that is, in the way we are currently positioned, is that we refuse to agree. It's not that we can't agree, we refuse to. And the reason is because if we agree, we give ground to them. And you know how this feels, right? If you acknowledge anything, you give the enemy ground. You give them footing, and those words are, can and will be used against you in whatever argument or whatever thing is going to come up next. And all of a sudden, the sadness and frustration quickly give way to outrage and anger, and this becomes sort of the tone and the culture in which we try to perceive and understand the way things get done, particularly in our country. This quickly turns to blame and to the deflection of blame, which is the abdication of responsibility. Part of the thing that I try to do as a pastor, as someone who is responsible to lead an organization, is to always take responsibility, to always say we are going to take responsibility for the decisions we make, for the things we do. We're going to take responsibility for them. We're going to make decisions, and we're going to take responsibility for them because it is so lost in our culture. And I just think people need to, you need to do this. We need to stop blaming everybody for everything and start taking responsibility, the responsibility that God has actually given to us. And he's given it to his church. And I want you to see this this morning as we talk about this. This is unfortunately how the game gets played. But here are the implications of it. Our self-protective reflexes, and they're good, they begin to sort of let us believe that this happens to other people in other places, but not here and not to us. And it sort of allows us some space, some insulation, so that we can feel. It's really the only way human beings can kind of deal with all the brokenness in our world is kind of separate ourselves from it. And then what happens is from there we can offer thoughts and prayers, and authentically so, that, that there's nothing wrong with that. But this subtle form of self-protection and insulation begins to work, that has a healthy kind of place in our lives, but it becomes something more. It becomes something different. This space that we allow to separate us from them creates a place where all kinds of terrible things can grow. You ever notice this? Anytime you create space between me and you, between us and them, we create some place for all kinds of you know, fertile soil, for all kinds of terrible things to grow. For resentment, for misunderstanding, for misrepresentation, ultimately sort of objectification, making them the enemy, all these things. Andy Stanley talked about this. I heard him give a, a, a talk to the Georgia State Legislature. Andy Stanley is a pastor in Atlanta. And he told all these politicians, Democrats and Republicans, he said, if you have to have an enemy to lead, you're a terrible leader. And that is the culture we live in. The, the whole goal is we make them an enemy and then we lead. Oh, if they win, you're going to be in trouble. And the other side says the exact same. If they, and it's because we have not learned how to lead with stewardship and responsibility. And this, is, this is an opportunity for us. For us. When this continues to happen, we create an endless variety of thems that often end up being sort of what grows in that so fertile soil in between those places is all the things that justify or serve to justify us. This has been going on for thousands and thousands of years. This is nothing new. Nero tried to blame Jesus followers for the fires in Rome, right? This has been going on forever. 
I mean, Adam blamed God for Eve after he couldn't blame Eve, right? I mean, it's, it goes all the way back. It's how things sort of get done. Martin Luther King wrote in Letters from a Birmingham Jail, if you've never read, it's brilliantly written. He says in there, um, it's where the famous line, injustice uh, anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. But the next part, he says, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. So my thinking was this. What if there is no them? What if there's only us? What if it's only us? And that's what God came to redeem. Right, because if you think about winning and losing, the redemption is all the people who are enemies, they get destroyed, and then us, we win. What if there is no us, and then what if there's only us? And somehow God came to do this every single place where he allows us or calls us or draws us into. And this is the story that we're looking at. And this is how I want us to, to frame this um, today. The Bible is broken into two parts. We've looked at this. It's broken into these two parts. And part one is what we've called, man, that's a cool purple. And every, every, this, this is always fun because I get to try, test all the new colors. And it gets me, like, I, I don't do this in all the other services because I get used to it by then. But there's, it's broken into two parts. There's the old, and then because there's an old, there's a what? Right, everybody knows this. We try to talk about what these are about. What are these about? There was a giant gap of time between this. We taught this last week. Jesus emerges somewhere in here. He's crucified here. He ascends here. There's about another 50 years where this movement of Jesus is happening and people are writing and collecting these letters that are being written about this. And then somewhere about 180 years-ish uh, later, they all get to be sort of collected into the 27 books that we know today. But this would have been the space in between is where everything happened. And there was something that was happening here because the old covenant, the old story, the old promise was essentially a story of human longing for us to be right again, and the anticipation of what would finally make everything the way it was supposed to be. So when you're reading this, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans, it's, our, it's a longing for the way things are supposed to be, this return. All of the prophets, all of the old, it's this grinding old testament is designed to waken a long anticipation, and Jesus shows up. And he reads out of the Old Covenant, he says, this has been fulfilled in me. These are, we can't even begin to think about how radical these words were to those who heard this. Everything that you have heard and read about God's people and the promises he's made to God's people are all fulfilled in me. And then he is crucified because that's what happens when you make statements like that and the Roman government doesn't appreciate it. And then he's resurrected and because people see this 
and in the message that he preached and the things that he taught, they began to sort of circulate around him and spread this movement of Jesus throughout the world. And then 40 days later, he ascends. So what you have to think about is this, that the new covenant is essentially all about the fulfillment of the old. How did God, how did Jesus specifically fulfill all of this? And secondly, are the implications of that fulfillment. That's what the whole thing's about. When we read it, we're, we're participating in this. So what, so what is this about? So let's, let's look. Let's look. Ephesians chapter 2. This is a letter that is written by Paul. It was written somewhere around this point right here about 20 to 30 years after Jesus had ascended. He's writing a letter to a group of Jesus followers in a very Greek town. And he's trying to help them understand the implications of the gospel. Because what they would have known is that they were Gentiles. And they did not belong to the people of God, the, the, the Hebrews or the, the Jewish people. And so there was a marking of the old that was this idea of circumcision and these religious rites that would distinctly identify them from everyone else. It was through them that, they, that the whole world would be promised. That's what the old covenant talks about. And so Paul's writing this letter. And he says, hey, there were these two groups of people, but now there aren't two groups of people anymore because Jesus fulfilled that. And now there are implications of that. Okay, so this is, this is kind of what's happening here. So he writes this letter, and this is in chapter 2. And he says, Therefore, remember those, uh, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised, and that was a way to distinguish them from us, by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. And we don't have to go any more into that, right? It means exactly what you think it means. And then he goes on, he says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from this citizenship, from belonging in Israel, to Israel, and you were foreigners to this covenant of promise without hope and without God in the world. He was just establishing that there was a way prior to this where you were separated and you did not belong. And just for kind of, you know, kicks and giggles, he had already addressed this with the Jewish people. He'd already addressed this to them in other places. Like, you're not in any different than these people are in. We're all in under Christ. And you're going to see him kind of moving into this. In verse 13, he says this, but now. But now there's been a fulfillment. But now things have changed. And in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You have been brought into this way of life by what Jesus did for us on the cross, by this sacrifice. And then he begins to explain this. For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed all the space that separates us, this dividing wall of hostility. And it can be two groups. It can be a thousand groups. It can be however many groups you and I choose to create. He comes in and Jesus begins to destroy these dividing walls between us. Setting aside in his flesh, 
the law with its commands and the regulations, which is basically he fulfilled all the things of the old covenant. And then he says this, his purpose, and we looked at this a few months ago, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two. There is no them. One new humanity out of two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God because they agree with one another on all the right issues. Did you see that? How did he reconcile us? Think about it. Through the cross. What the heck does that mean? I've read scholarly great pastors who will say something like this and then talk about an issue that if we agreed on, we'd bring the kingdom more fully to bear. It is not what this says. It's not what this says. It says he is reconciling us. He is calling in us. The way he is redeeming us is through the cross by which he has put to death their hostility or all hostility. He came and he proclaimed or demonstrated. The word here is preached, but it's not the best word because it sounds like something I do. It's not it's something that Jesus did when he demonstrated peace to us who were far away and peace to those who were near. He just brought everybody under one thing. And through him, we all, we both, both groups have access to the Father by the Spirit. That's the gospel. That's what he's done. And what this is, is that we are reconciled because we've been forgiven. We are reconciled because my sin and your sin have been forgiven. And that allows us the space to live in the way that God has intended for us. There is no unity. There is no wholeness. There is no body without forgiveness. It doesn't happen. This is why this is so important. We are reconciled through the cross because that is what eliminates or makes a way for our sin to be forgiven such that we can live together without owing one another. But rather we are free to give of ourselves to one another. So what are the implications of this? That's the fulfillment. What are the implications of this? Consequently, this is exactly what he says. Consequently, here are the implications. You are no longer foreigners and strangers. But now you are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Look around. All these nutty people you're sitting next to, tag, they're it. Consequently, because we have been reconciled to God, we now are being reconciled to one another. That means you are being reconciled with people who you do not agree with and people perhaps you do not even yet like. It's tough, and it's hard. It's what the world is looking for. He goes on, he says this, that we are built, that we're fellow citizens, members of the household. This is the language you start to see. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, built on all of this, but what? Fulfilled in Christ as the foundation upon which we stand. Everything hinges on how we give him authority 
and how we give allegiance to him and his kingdom. In him, the whole building, and he's using a metaphor here, right, is being joined together and it rises up to become a dwelling place of God's presence. It bears his image. That's exactly what the temple would have been. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives. That's what's happening in us. He himself is our peace. He himself is our foundation. And this is the implications of that. There is no other way this happens. There is no other way this happens. Until the whole world is under his allegiance, there will be no peace. It all comes underneath his reign. And what we have been brought into is to bear his image, to bear that reality in the world around us, and to bear responsibility for his work in the world. I keep saying this over and over and over and over and over again. But you and I bear responsibility in the world that we create. We are being built up to bring his presence to bear on the world around us. Therefore, where we go, his presence goes. Where we go, his way goes. Where we go is places where he desires his will to be. And this is where it gets really, really to me, very pointed. Um, Megan Good, uh, who wrote the book I, I quoted a few weeks ago, um, called The Bible Unwrapped, she said this, and this is brilliant. She said, the main politic of a Christian is that Jesus is Lord. And the main place that politic plays out is in the church where we voluntarily give our allegiance to him. It's extraordinary. That is the call and the challenge. And there are implications of Jesus' rule. Now, we're kind of an informal church, in case you haven't figured that out yet. Y'all know that, right? And there's some things that get lost because we don't adhere to the Christian calendar. This past Thursday, anybody know what it was on the Christian calendar? It was Ascension, Ascension Day. Uh, it was also my daughter's birthday, which is kind of fun. She actually knew it was Ascension Day. I was like, whoa, how'd you know that? It was Ascension Day. So right here. And what a lot of us think when Jesus ascended, he just like peaced out and said, good luck to you guys. I'm going back to chill with the Father, man. Good luck to all y'all down there working it out. That's actually not what it says. I've never really considered this more deeply. Do you know where Jesus ascended to? To the right hand of the Father to take his rightful place as Lord over all. So Paul actually starts his letter with this picture, and I want, you, I want this to be the picture from which you and I begin to think. See, we're reading the Bible out loud, and we're reading it together to say, Lord, what do you have to say to us? What pictures are you bringing to mind? What do you have for us to participate in? And here's what it says in uh, chapter 1, verse 19. And chapter one is just, it's, it's all about the beginning of redemption and the gospel. And um, let me make sure I'm getting the exact context right. It says we've been chosen, we've been included in Christ. I mean, all these things 
are in there. And then he's praying that we'll have this, this power that God has for us. And this is what he says, that that power that we have, verse 19, is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly realms. The power, which is the force of God's love and God's pursuit and God's promise has come to us and is made available for those of us who are willing to trust him. That power is the same strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. And he seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms. And he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every other name that is evoked. He is above them. He is Lord over them. Not only here and now, but in the ages to come. That means he is already seated in the place where he reigns. And then what it says is this, and this is to me the beautiful thing. And God has placed all things under his feet. And he has appointed him to be head over everything for the assembly for the people of God. For those who are becoming his temple and bear his image. He has done all of this for us to participate. And how do we participate? The fullness of him. So as, as we become more like him, embracing and learning what it is to be fulfilled, to be filled with his, the fullness of his image, the fullness of his authority. We then become the source through which Christ fills, what does it say? Everything in every way. We fill every gap with his presence, with his love, with his pursuit, with his redemptive work. Every place. Here's what I want you to understand. Do you see any gaps or separations in our country and the relationships that you have? Do you see any gaps? Do you see any places where you are separated from other people? Do you see those gaps? Guess what Christ intends to do? He intends to fill those places, to reconcile and to restore and to redeem. And it takes you and I being willing to step into those places to recognize that there is no them there is only us. When Jesus came to save the world, he came to save the world. He came to save us, all of us. And he is asking us, he is requiring of us to step into all of those gaps, not to get people to agree with us, right? If you, if you only win an argument, you've only created agreement, not reconciliation. Reconciliation is something far more powerful that through us, through you and I, that Jesus and his lordship would fill everything in every way. Do you know what kind of imagination you need to see that, to think that, to consider that? This is what we have to ask God for. So the question maybe that I'll leave you, I wanted to tell you, go read your Bible out loud with your family and friends, and you should do that. 
But I want you to consider what Jesus and his image might mean in the gaps that you stand around and sometimes in every single day. This is how God's promise of redemption works. Until one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess on the earth and under the earth what he has known and what we are learning all along that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that gets played out in the way you and I are willing to live as his people, as us, for the sake of his redemptive purposes in the world. Father, would you help us? All the events of this week, is so, the last three weeks, it is so easy to draw lines and divides. God, there are plenty of people who are going to do that. May we leave the divisive work to everyone else, and as your people, would we do the work of reconciliation? Through your cross, and God, we, we don't know fully how to do all the things that you're asking us to do. What we do know is that you're faithful to guide us and to lead us, and may we be responsive to you as we hear what you have to say to us. Father, this is in the promise given to your church that through us, you would feel everything in every way. Give us eyes to see that. Give us the courage to trust and to walk in it. I ask all of this in of your son, Jesus, who is our king. Amen. Hey, next week starts summer, summer Sabbath. We're looking forward to teaching you how to rest. How does that sound? So we're going to do that starting next week for the next little while. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you all so much. Y'all enjoy your weekend.